Welcome to Roots and Ruminants, your podcast for creative and innovative use of farm, pasture, and rangeland. We're going back to the basics of raising and grazing livestock, growing your own forage, and practical land use. Okay, welcome back to another episode of Roots and Ruminants. I'm Justin Frickty, sitting down once again with co-host Jared Knock. And so we've got a, a special guest, uh, Cameron Goodrich from Wagner, South Dakota, is, is going to visit with us here this morning. And we're going to talk through his operation. Uh, Cameron has been a customer of Millborn Seeds, and so we've gotten to learn about his operation, where he's been, and some of the awesome things he's doing. Um, Cameron, thanks for coming on and spending some time with us. Appreciate it. You bet. Why don't you go ahead and, um, you know, some of the conversations we've had in the past are about um, kind of your beginning. Um, but before yeah. we get into that, can you tell us, just uh, just give us the overview of your operation? Yeah, so I farm down uh, by Wagner, South Dakota here. Um, pretty common corn, soybeans, uh, winter wheat, a little bit of grain sorghum. Uh, raised some grass and alfalfa as well, just for our own livestock. And uh, yeah, been here. Well, a few years now. I graduated high school in 2013, went to SDSU, and had a great time there. And I uh, graduated in the fall. Ditto. Of I 18. also had a great time there. Me too. Yeah. I, was there. I yep. saw it. We liked it. <laughs> I liked that. <laughs> Hands down, I, some days I wish I could go back. There's no doubt about that. So, yeah. yes. But uh, yeah, I started, uh, came back in the fall of 18, which was a very wet, miserable year for us. Mm-hmm. Um, combined most of our corn in January, fall, or January of 19 that year, actually, and um, got kind of thrown right into it, and yeah, that's how I ended up here. So you, right after college, you when you graduated, you moved directly back to the operation? Yep, what I've always wanted to do, and um, I grew up in Rapid City, actually, believe it or not. Okay. Um, my grandparents always farmed, and down here in Wagner, and uh, I, as long as I can remember, I always wanted to be a farmer when I grew up, and Spent all my summers here and a lot of weekends and, and uh, learned along the way and kind of everything worked out timing wise. And so, yeah. So you didn't really move back. You moved there for the first time full time anyway. You yeah. bet. Yep. New environment. Great. <laughs> yeah. And what, so. tell us a little bit about Wagner, South Dakota. This is your chance to pitch the, the good community oh, of Wagner, South Dakota. I don't have too much to say. I mean, it's a nice small town. I think roughly 1,700 people or so. Um, I'm in the National Guard unit here as well, or I was anyway, and um, just met a lot of friends quickly that way, and then just church and other things, and I have, I have other family here too besides my grandparents, so um, yeah, it feels, it's always kind of felt like home, I guess, in a lot of ways, so yeah. Okay. Do you think that's an advantage or a disadvantage, coming back uh, not to your immediate parents' place, come back to your grandparents' place, is that is that good? Is it harder? Oh, uh, it's... <laughs> I, yeah, I've thought about that too myself. It's It goes both ways. I mean, uh, I think a lot of people know, right off the bat, know who you are, or they've over the years they've figured out who you are, even though you haven't met everybody kind of thing. But, um, yeah, I guess no nobody's got a history on you, good or bad. So there's no <laughs> – yeah, <laughs> nobody can judge you that way or they can't look back at your high school years and say, yeah, knucklehead or, you know, nothing like that. So Well, you've got um, some – advantages of familiarity and family and that kind of stuff but you also have a you know a bit of a feeling of a fresh start right? yeah clean slate yeah absolutely and uh same thing with my wife i met her my uh oh, i suppose 2017 i guess she was in school at brookings as well she's up from the groton area and so then we got married and she moved down here so that was a whole new new life uh start there for her moving down here so moved her south yeah 
Yep. Mm-hmm. To a warmer climate. So. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Balmy Wagner <laughs> compared to girl. You bet. Yes. Tell us about yep. uh tell us about the geography, the topography of, of your operation, your farm and ranch. Is it uh, hilly, flat, you know? Yeah, somewhere in between. It's kind of gentle rolling hills. Uh most of our ground, uh, you know, in a in a what I'll call a normal year we'll have some low some low ground, some wet spots. Um a lot of it probably could be tiled but it's you don't see a lot of that around here um not not overly productive ground i mean i'd say on a normal quote-unquote normal year we're in that 150 to 160 range but 200 is not unheard of i guess in the better years and i mean the last couple years we've been more around that 100 bushel uh, when we're talking corn because we've been so dry so if that gives you any kind of idea on the productivity of it yeah but uh yeah so it's uh, and then uh, there's there's a fair bit of pasture around here as well, um, so it's not you don't have to do, go too far to find find grass. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, so. which which probably so you, you mean you talk about the landscape and it sounds like a fairly diverse landscape. If you got some potholes and rolling hills and maybe not a lot of tiled ground at this point, I mean it's probably pretty conducive to having a diverse array of livestock as well. Yeah, definitely. Yep, a lot of and very uh, no till is pretty common as well. So. Um, you see a lot of that and, uh, yeah, but to see cattle or, or cover crops or different things isn't too uncommon, I guess, in our area. A lot of, there's plenty of cattle guys around and probably a lot of operations that are more focused on cattle than farming, especially as you move uh, south of Wagner into the river Hills, that's probably your more ranchy area, so to speak. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. okay. Yep. Tell, tell but, us about the cow herd, about the livestock you got in your operation. Yeah, so I got uh, got cattle, and then I also have some sheep as well. Just uh, just cow calf operation, and we'll background our calves for oh sixty days or so. Um, the sheep part of the deal is something that really excites me. I got into that right out of college, kind of thanks to my father in law or uh, the in laws operation. They had a big sheep operation up by Groton there, and that was my first exposure to it. So otherwise, I'd have never gave it a thought. And, uh, not to say that they pushed me to get sheep or anything, but I just, I thought it was very interesting and I could see where, you know, we always talk about adding to the pie, you know, if you're coming back to an operation, what, what can you add? And, uh, that was kind of something I, I felt was a good option. Um, even on the, on the place here, just facilities wise, um, you know, had had a couple old, old style hog barns basically that I'm like, well, cool. I could make some lambing barns out of those. Mm-hmm. Um, and that same thing, we had some, some small farmsteads that we, you know, we rented the crop ground around there and then there's maybe 20 acres or 30 acres of just yard space that really wasn't used for nothing, you know, old, old, old cattle lots or whatever. And so, you know, run some electric fence around there and boom, now you got some sheep pasture. And otherwise, you know, you probably wouldn't bother putting cattle in there because it's just, it'd be too small of a herd to even justify putting a bull on a small pasture like yeah. that. So it's kind of just taking advantage of some opportunities that uh, came about. So, Well, Cameron, if I was going to describe exactly why and how we got into sheep in our place, it would be word for word what you just said. <laughs> That's exactly, <laughs> yeah. exactly the same scenario, right? So chunks you of bet. grass and trees that are too small to you know, partition off for cattle didn't make any sense. Um, yep. Use an old fairwing barn as a lambing barn had sat empty for, I think 12 years, like, like didn't open the door. It's on the home place right behind mom and dad's house. No yeah. reason to even open the door <laughs> just sitting there. Yep. So yeah, it's, 
it's exciting to, to see that stuff come back to life. Cause when I was, when I was a young kid, I suppose that was, well, of course in the late nineties, um, it was still enough for at least guys in this area to have, you know, anywhere from 20 to 50 sows. That was mm-hmm. kind of still a common thing. Mm-hmm. And so I remember that growing up and I just thought that was the neatest thing. And so to see that barn come back to life was, was kind of cool for me anyway. And, uh, I, I put a lot of, put a lot of hours into cleaning, cleaning things up there and, yeah. uh, tearing old farrowing pens out and, and putting lambing pens in there and that kind of stuff. And, Did you construct but, lambing jugs from the farrowing crates? No, there is. Uh, so actually there was just farrowing pens. Okay. And oh, oh that's handy. Yeah. Yeah. Not even crates. Yeah. <laughs> so no, I, I went in and tore all that out and, and made lambing pens or lambing jugs out of uh, just one inch square tubing and um, hog panels and um, built a lot of that and kind of retrofitted everything. So then kind of basically just built yards around those barns, fence line feed bunks and whatnot, and uh, turned our calving barn into another sheep barn and then built another little facility just for calving. Um, and like I said, we'll get into that later, I guess, but we moved the calving date later now, so really don't need much for facilities. So I kind of freed that aspect up as well. Did your grandpa give you grief for moving the cabin back? Cause it was, easy. Oh yeah. There's, be like, I did it this a, way for 45 years. There's, you know, there's a whole list three of, foot things. of snow. Yep. So <laughs> <laughs> a whole list of things I give him grief about all the time, or he gives me grief about. And that was, that was a big one. Um, well, I mean, it wasn't a huge change. He started cabin uh, around the first of March. And then I, I started roughly around uh, April 10th or so. Okay. And, uh, which for me has been an awesome change because I, I feel like I don't even calf cows. I just walk out there once a day and, Oh, I got some calves, better tag them, you know, mm-hmm. now if the weather gets bad, yeah, I might go out at night or something, but I haven't, we've been pretty blessed the last couple springs. It's been nice and, and it's been dry as well. So didn't have to fight the mud too much. That's the, that's but, the crazy thing about the shifting calving dates for a lot of people in this part of the world is like, it wasn't that far. It was like a month made a huge difference. You know, it wasn't like yeah. you were moving from January to May. It was like, just stop yeah. doing it in March and just move it to the end of April. Exactly. Yep. World of difference. And it didn't change a lot as far as, uh, you know, everything was mostly calved out by the time it went to grass. You know, it might have been a few stragglers and either keep them at home or haul them to grass, let them calve there. And mm-hmm. yeah, everything still got worked and vaccinated before we went to. And yeah, it didn't, didn't change too much. And I like the, I like the aspect of, well, now they have oh, at least forty-five days on grass to kind of kind of fatten back up a little bit and recover. You bet. Yeah. Otherwise, sure. you're really pushing the feed to them, and then you know turnout would be about May fifteenth before kind of when they'd go to grass, and and uh, they had to be in good condition going there. You know. I want to I want to back up just a little bit. Okay, when you decided to bring sheep back onto the operation, let's talk through what that actually looks like as far as stocking rates and what you can hold, how many ewes you can have instead of one pair. How many how many head of the ewes are you running? So if you, I, you've got the five acre pasture, how many ewes are you running on a five acre pasture? Oh boy, see, I've I've never ran ewes on an, on pasture for the entire summer. So I couldn't even, I couldn't even tell yeah, you for sure. Okay. I know cattle in our area, we're looking around, you know, some guys can push it, uh, almost two acres a pair, but you know, three to four, even up to five is more common. Um, just depending on how long, but mm-hmm, mm-hmm. with my sheep, it's, uh, they only go to a, 
those pasture, those farm sites for maybe a couple months. Mm-hmm. And then they'll come back home and I have kind of full season cover crops that go on. So, and I don't know what the ratio people will say. It's might be five to one or seven to one, yep. um, depending on the size of your sheep. And, yeah, and I think that's pretty consistent with what yeah. we would use for numbers here. So. What, okay, yeah. so you take these uh, these sheep into these old farm places that haven't been grazed, probably haven't been used for a long, long time, right? Yep. And they come in, and then since you're doing it seasonally and getting them off there, I'm guessing from time to time, you just kind of let them get it pretty good and chewed up and eaten up, right? Yeah, yep. I mean, it, uh, the first year, so I should say the one the one farmstead I went on, uh, my cousin, he used to put his cows there in the spring. He'd haul, he'd haul pears down there just to kind of get them off the farm, get them out of the mud or whatever. And so, you know, so it was kind of tore up in spots and, and especially around the sheds and stuff that were there. So a lot of weeds, which is a great thing for, for sheep, as long yeah. as it's not things like uh, buffalo burr or basically anything with thorns on it. They really don't eat too well. But looking at year one to year four now, there's no weeds no left weeds there. Left. And that's kinda, I kind of wish there was because by the time I get them there, it's just brome grass now and maybe some Canada thistle here and there. And, and, uh, and they don't, they don't eat brome grass quite as well as a, as a cow would. So, yeah, so true. But uh, yeah. What's the, the weeds. What's the nope, coolest thing that you found out in the trees that you did not know was there until your sheep ate it down enough. That you could see it. Uh, <laughs> nothing, nothing there actually. Oh, that, really? that site's, site's pretty cleaned up. There's a couple old uh, Hestons out there. Okay. Uh, used to harvest Milo with, but that's that's about it. There's plenty of wire and all sorts of other things rolled up out there that, that they've gotten into. But. We did that one time, and my dad and uncle found things that they like, oh, that's where that was. Remember that? Remember we had that piece of implement <laughs> when we had a kid, and it was when we were kids, you know, like 40 years ago. And it had been yeah. sitting out the trees and eventually kind of sunk in and in and in and kind of got ingrown in the weeds. And we took the sheep out there the yep. first time, and you could see everything. I was like, oh. Yeah, it was like a, it was like lighting a fire out there and cleaning it all up. Yeah, no, they they definitely clean the place up pretty good. Sometimes I'll do that with ear tags, and you're like, ah, ah, that was a that's where that one yeah. went. Right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so you're looking for some weed seeds for those spots and get something. Uh, get something sure, going. yeah, if you got some. No <laughs> rediversification, right? Yeah, no, I've always said if if you can't afford cover crop, you probably just go lightly disc a, a stubble field and get the weeds to come that'd probably be good enough for sheep but <laughs> no, it's not wrong yep <clears throat> cool so you mentioned you, you know when you bring your ewes back off of those areas you're you're coming back onto some grazing cover crops what's that plan look like or how are you using those so it, uh the first few years i guess the first thing i kind of dabbled with was oats and peas and i started that in 2016 or 17 and had awesome luck with it. I got it planted right at the end of March. And, uh, you know, of course, the old timer told me it's going to be nothing but weeds out there because you can't spray oats and peas, you know, like you could oats. Well, it, it turned out awesome. The only weeds you had out there was kochia. And really, that's not that bad a feed depending on when you cut it. And uh, so that's kind of the first uh, multi-species crop I messed with. So we would uh, hay that off and then go back with a cover crop of just your warm season annuals, uh, your millets or your sorghum sedans, maybe some cow peas, different things like that. And, uh, then come through and graze that since then, uh, I guess this year would be the first time I moved to just planting, uh, warm season annuals right away. And towards the mid to end of May, depending on the weather. 
um, and then try to graze that through twice. Because that seemed like after you'd hay the oats and peas off, depending on the year, we're kind of, seemed like we tend to be drier around here. It was just, couldn't get that great of a, of a crop after that. And a guy should be able to, but sometimes it doesn't work out that great. So, um, yeah, it's coming off middle of summer. And so, yeah, expecting a rain there end of June, 1st of July. That's yeah. Kind of inconsistent. Exactly. So, you know, I, I think a couple of times I was kind of disappointed with it. Just, I mean, I, everything always came up good, but it just, you know, there's more potential there if it would have been planted early. And so, I looked at it and I'm like, well, I have enough alfalfa and everything else. I probably don't need the oats and peas. So we just went to, you know, seeding a warm season annual mix right away towards the, you know, end of May, like I said, and try to graze that at least twice through. Um, and that worked out pretty good. We also do some cereal rye after, after corn. Um, some of it we'll chop for silage. Or when we chop the corn for silage, I should say, we'll plant the cereal rye after it. And then the stuff in the part of the field will combine. Uh, we'll plant that. So that can be anywhere. To, uh, I think last year was the 18th of November. I planted that rye and it did just fine the next spring. And so then the following year, we'll graze it in the spring. Um, then burn that down usually by the end of June, or excuse me, the 1st of June. And then come back with a, a winter mix is what I call it. Something I can just plant, let it grow for the rest of the growing season, and hopefully graze it sometime in that december to february time frame depending on snow so that's kind of where we're at with the with the cover crop deal a lot of different arrangements yeah yeah yeah, we got lots of options and (laughs) a lot of learning so so i kind of i jotted these down because i think it's important to like our listeners always go but what did you do and how did you do it and when did you do it like they really want some details so i want to ask a couple like more questions each of those so the corn going on the silage acres or where the corn was combined you're grazing that early in the spring is that like in the last three to four years how many times are you able to graze that and get enough grazing value off of it uh every time every time okay three years but like i said it's been been relatively dry you know you haven't had to worry about uh ruining the ground too much i should say this spring and i and i strip graze them through it so i'll go out there usually move them every day um cattle and sheep two two poly wires i keep ahead of them and that keeps them in and usually move that every day so this spring well it's probably in may i suppose we did get a pretty decent rain so in kind of that one little strip they were in, that got pretty stepped up and uh, kind of ugly. So then when I came back and no-tilled into it with, with that next mix, I just cross-hatched that one area. So I basically, you know, planted the whole field and then just came back in that small strip and and uh, went the other direction perpendicular. And you can't even tell it was there now that you see it from the road. So sure. as far as compaction or anything else, but. And you did see your, the sheep and the cows are together in the spring grazing on their eye. Correct. And are they yep. calving or lambing in the spring at that time? No, so I, no. So the, most of the sheep are done lambing by then. Um, okay. all they're either weaned off or all even I've thrown some families out there. Okay. And usually the sheep get started on it sooner than the cattle. I kind of, if you know anything about cereal rye, it's, it gets ahead of you pretty quick mm-hmm. in the springtime. And so I, I get the sheep out there early as I can. And then once it hits that threshold where it's like, okay, now we really got to start moving through it. Then I'll run the cows out there too. And a good chunk of them, most of them have calved at that point in uh, mid-May. So yeah, that's worked, worked pretty good. It's, I've got 
roughly, I'd say three weeks of grazing to a month, uh, the last few years. So well, out of it. At a pretty key time, you know, with a, yeah. a lot of nutrient requirements in the cattle and, and know. no other grass to go to. Right. You bet. Yeah. Okay. So yep. then we, you're coming off of the rye. Right, do you have to spray the rye then when you're done? Yeah. You just, just plant your winter mix the, into it. Nope, I do spray it. Yeah. Spray it off, and then you no-till drill a winter mix. And you a winter mix, you're grazing it like late fall, early winter. Is that the plan for that? Yep. So graze it in the winter. I, I call it a winter mix, I guess, because yeah. I'm I try to plant species that hopefully would kind of hold some feed value going, you know, even into the winter. Um, but this year I had uh, a photo period sensitive sorghum sedan because I didn't want it to put a head on it because then yeah. you kind of lose some feed value and the rest of it. Uh, cow peas, baldy safflower, and a forage collard. I want to say there's mm-hmm. something else in there too. But uh, yeah, I was pretty happy with how that turned out considering the lack of rainfall we had. Are you grazing it right now? Nope. I hope to get on that towards, well, whenever I can't graze corn stalks anymore. Nice. So you're still on <laughs> stalks and then you go to that. Yeah. That, yeah. Fantastic. Yep. We uh, took the liberty to look up uh, your mix here. Hope that's okay, Cameron. But cow peas, yeah. BMR, sorghum sedan, forage collards, turnips. Nice. All these sunflower. Yep. Yep. It's a good mix. Good mix. Brassicas, yeah. broad leaves, and a grass. Safflowers yep. and collards are probably two things that we haven't talked about a lot no. on this podcast. And two things that are, you know, I don't know, not new, but like relatively new to put in mixes. Let's talk about those two things. Yeah. Cameron. What do you like about safflower, Cameron? Uh, so that was my first time planting it, but uh, I had watched uh, like a YouTube video of another company that was kind of featuring it and just saying how, so I think once it puts its seed head on, it has a kind of a high oil or fat content to it. Yeah, so that's my first time ever planting it, and um, they just they just mentioned how it can hold its feed value well into the winter, um, so I thought, well, give it a try. So yeah. I just think it's kind of the fun part of the you know the the tmr look of all, of all these mixes and you know just as we get into you know once you know how to like you know put a feed wagon together and put some protein in a in a starch and a fiber and that kind of stuff then you like start to t- tweak a little bit right yeah. like oh, let's get some oils right let's get something there like coat color some vitamins and that kind of stuff so you start putting fats and that kind of thing and it's yeah. kind of how we've evolved in the cover crop mix too i don't think we would have talked about yeah. getting an oil source or a you know a fat source into a cover crop until about a year or two ago we started talking about that yeah what about some peridovix right. what about some sunflowers some safflower you know let's get a little oil out there mm-hmm. Flax. yeah yeah and actually i should mention there was some sunflowers in the mix as well too i don't know how they ended up in there but i wasn't i wasn't mad to see them i guess so, <laughs> so there's, there's a few sunflowers out there but so Perfect. hopefully i haven't i haven't even checked to see if they made any seeds or not i don't know it might have been too late for that but there's definitely heads out there so and co- collards collards is kind of a southern thing right if you go to yeah back a barrel you can get some collard coll- greens. collards yep okay but you know wagner's not in the traditional south hey hey just for for the record since this is going on the record is the cracker barrel would you say it's an above average nice restaurant or below average Ooh, i would say it's a for as far as how you dress, yeah. Like, well, I know just I think, the atmosphere, the food quality. I think you need to dress up in a super cheap suit. <laughs> like you have to dress nice, but it has to be cheap, nice clothes. Does that makes sense. Yeah, Cameron, have you been to a Cracker Barrel? 
Oh, absolutely. And I think it's a pretty classy place. I think it's pretty nice. Like, pretty good yeah. food. Above average. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Okay. Yeah. okay. Like, I, we had this argument uh, on the way to Louisville what's average last like week with my wife. And I... Uh, see, Denny's is below Cracker Barrel for sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Everybody knows that. But, yeah. like, how far down is Denny's? You know, you get pretty to far. Out so, where's average then? What's the average? What about, would you say Perkins is average for, like, a sit-down? That's, that's pretty fair. Average price, yeah. average quality food, pretty good service usually. Yeah. All right. Yep. Where's Cracker Barrel in reference oh, to Perkins? Yeah, way above. All right. Yeah. Way above. So, yep, you did it. You just solved the equation got a more homey feel to it it sure that, does you know, yeah rustic feel whatever you want to call yeah. it yeah and i don't think they have collard greens at perkins no <laughs> nope <laughs> so, which brings us full circle to collards forage collards what do you like about grazing forage collards i i don't know i guess just more more vegetative growth it seems like yeah um yeah and well, then i've kind of i've kind of heard, heard people argue that um, you know, people love turnips and radishes for kind of breaking up compaction, but then a lot of people say, well, the fibrous root system is the best, the best thing that can do that, especially with a turnip. I, I do like a turnip and that's why I had them in that winter mix just cause you know, they're, they're going to be out there and the cows will eat them and that's kind of a, a good feed source. But, uh, as far as breaking up compaction, I don't know how, how, how much a softball sitting at the, so- at the soil surface, maybe one or two inch deep does for compaction, but it sure makes good grazing. So going back to the collards, though, I just, I love seeing that giant leafy plant there and it's, it's good feed and probably, probably puts on more vegetative growth than a, than a turnip or a radish, I guess is why I went with those. And it regrows as well, if I'm not mistaken, fairly well. Yeah, that it does. So yep. that's the other thing. You ever but, tried eating, like personally eating any of the f- cover crop ingredients we have people that will take turnips you know and, and cook them up and that kind of stuff did you to try the collard the collards at all yeah i've chewed on them before i've yeah. heard people try that and, and see what the taste like you know <laughs> so it's collards. always it's always interesting because if you if you watch anything graze real closely it's it's interesting how they'll they'll pick down a spot to the dirt and then they'll leave something else yeah. right next to it you know and it's true. like wonder what each of those tastes like they must know you know they they yeah, <clears throat> I want to. I want to. I want to hit a little bit about. Uh, okay, so you're. I mean, it would be called multi-species grazing. Yep. Okay. Do your cattle and your sheep are they bonded together? Uh they they have been sold. I don't have them together all that often. Okay. I mean, uh, in the spring and then in the winter they will be. Um, so sometimes you'll see them together. But as far as uh, if they're out together and then oh we need to get the cows in because they're going to grass. Well, usually that's not an issue they're they're pretty easy to sort apart um, yeah. mainly because the sheep are broke to their corn broke so you can shake a pail they'll all come running in and the cows will just stand out there and look at you yeah so that's that's the easy way to to sort them um there's people that do rely on that though for kind of predator control or, or protecting the sheep but mm-hmm. uh i think you had to run them long enough together to where they get accustomed to being together you know yeah, yeah. That makes no. sense. ours don't do yours <laughs> no yeah. I don't run them together. Uh, oh, really? No, never. Um, I, uh, occasionally for a okay. short period of time, like in the winter on stocks or something. Couple that might months be the in same. the summer, a couple months in the fall. Usually, the pastures are really never the same. I'm pretty sure our cows would like cheer on the coyotes. <laughs> they would not protect them at all. I think they just sit there and like kind of smile and watch. Uh, yeah, I don't think there's any love between them at all. It's like they're more often on opposite sides of the field and pasture than they are the same. Yeah, like it's. 
if it was random, they'd be closer together. Uh, yeah. The way they interact. Cameron, do you do anything for predator control? I do have a guard dog okay. and, um, he's a great Pyrenees Akbash cross. Yeah. And, uh, he's been, he's been awesome. I, I keep saying I get lucky with, cause I have a good cattle dog as well. And I, you know, I don't have the expertise to train either one of them and somehow they just turned out awesome. So I don't know. I just, I think it's just pure luck, but, um, no, he stays with the sheep all the time, depending on where they're at and I'll take feed to them once a day or whatever. And, uh, I, I can't say I've ever lost a sheep to a coyote. I mean, that's yeah. not to say maybe one was out there and they drug it off or I didn't see it. I don't know, but I, mm-hmm. there's coyotes. You can hear them all the time and they've, I've never had issues in the yard yeah. and, uh, or on pasture for that matter. That's and good. there's plenty of neighbors that'll lose calves in the springtime. So I think he's worth yeah. his weight in gold. Yeah. Yeah. Good. So good. Pretty cool. Yeah. Okay. Should we go back to the, the mix here? We talked about the winter grazing mix. Um, so are you still doing some of that double cut or you, you said you're kind of moving on from the oats and peas and then millet to oats and peas and then a, another mix, right? Or how yeah. Are so, that? so we're doing the, the rye that will graze, then mm-hmm. we'll burn that down and then plant that winter mix. So in a separate field, we'll have that summer annual mix that will try to graze through twice. Got it. And then, so just imagine on my home place here, we have three fields and they're broke up into those, that three year rotation corn, full season cover, and then the rye winter mix deal. Okay. So, yeah. Keep it simple. All the feed close yeah. to home. I like it. Yeah. That's the main thing. Having them at home that time of year, you don't have to fight with hauling water. And, um, you know, if the weather turns bad, you're right there. You don't have to worry about them out somewhere else. So what coursework did you take at South Dakota state university? Oh, geez. I, believe it or not, I started with a range science mm-hmm. uh, degree. I was I was really into grazing. I thought that was mm-hmm. I was kind of my interest early on. Um, so I started there, and then I ended up, well, I was gone for about a year and a half with the guards for basic training and then a deployment or whatever. So by the time I come back, and the, the course had changed to where it, it completely switched to more like an ecological focus more like you know someone that was going to go work for a government agency or they kind of they kind of lost their production focus if you will and um so i did have a few range classes ranch management classes taken that way and most of those transferred over then to an ast degree or egg systems technology okay um so that's what i ended up graduating with and i think the main reason i went with that is just because i could take whatever i wanted for the most part um, cause I had interest in precision ag, but also livestock. And then, you know, you can still take some accounting and, and whatnot. So I had quite a wide array of classes, but nothing too focused. So. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Yep. Makes sense. So it all built into this, uh, you know, kind of diverse model based on. Yeah, your, definitely. Yeah. Did your, yep. did your grandfather, did he use cover crops and was, was he open to some of these alternative forage systems and grazing ideas yeah i mean i because i know i talked to him in the plant one oh quite a long time before that and yeah it worked out good um yeah. but at the same time he wasn't looking at uh, grazing any later than you would graze corn stock so it wasn't uh, how do you say it? it wasn't that much of an advantage for him because he just like well i can be grazing stocks this time of year yep. you know yeah uh, and uh, yeah so no he's 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 gotten more open-minded and it's exciting to see uh you know 
the skepticism of things and then they work out and then, okay, then we can talk about doing it again next year. And, and, uh, well, I think yeah. that's pretty normal for most, most people, but how, okay, yeah. so, um, after college and getting back onto the operation, then where did you go to, to learn about some of these things? Or, I mean, who have been some of your mentors or what, how do you, how do you keep figuring things out? Oh man. So that started back in, uh, I suppose high school. I, I watched the, the movie or the documentary food Inc and fresh, yeah. which are pretty controversial, yeah. you know, documentaries. They definitely, you know, from a conventional ag standpoint there, but all that really did was just kind of expose me to the other side of ag. The more, I don't know what you want to call, it. I guess regenerative is, is the term we're using now. Um, and I'm like, huh? So that's where I seen guys like Joel Salatin. And then all you have to do is get on YouTube and, then you find Gabe Brown and uh, the list goes on and on Jim Garrish and all these people that are doing the rotational grazing and the, the cover crops and that stuff. So it's just, I don't know I can't link it back to one specific thing, but there's, there's endless knowledge to be known out there. There's all sorts of resources, mainly just on the internet and uh, different books I've read and whatnot. So what's your, uh, have you read the Salton books? Joel Salton? No, books? I've not. Okay. Nope. Um, I've read, read, kick the, I've read a couple of yep. Dave Pratt books from the ranching for profit school. Um, everything I want to do is illegal is my favorite Joel Salton book. Everything I want to really? do is illegal <laughs> talking about huh. all the, the FDA regulations on, you know, food, you know, transfer, like how it's so difficult for him to raise food and sell to his neighbors. Right. Yeah. Right, milk yep. and that kind of stuff. It's like, why is it so hard? It's the yep. most natural yeah, know they, first form of commerce in humanity, and it's made it overly difficult for people to like sell food to yep. their, their neighbors. Yeah, the powers at hand have really complicated things. Mm. Okay, well, <laughs> yeah. it's interesting. So, um, what, when your so your first take on that, like those interactions, like Food Inc., for example, your first take on that was it uh, defensive? Were you defensive toward it? And be like, that's not how it really is, or were you no, not eyes open, not at all, or, because. Yeah? I, I was kind of open to it. Um, I mean, that was quite a while ago, so I don't remember much about it, but, yeah. um, no, I definitely, I can see the other side of things and I, you know, I, we don't have any large scale confinement or anything that it was a personal attack towards. I mean, mm-hmm. we don't, we don't raise pigs or anything like that. So they didn't really hit on any of that, that I felt offended by, but, uh, it just, it just opened my mind or just kind of see all oh, what other thinking. people are doing. Just got you thinking. And yeah. That's all it was, mm-hmm. you know, so any other books you'd like to, I mean, kicking the hay habit's a great one. I appreciate that recommendation. Any other, any other books or cultural influences that, uh, you want to give a shout out to here? I don't know. I've, I've listened to a lot of podcasts lately as well. Yep. Uh, you guys, the, oh, of course not. I can't think of them. The working cows podcast and the herd quitter podcast. Yeah. Are all interesting. Ones. Those are, um, that's... YouTube has been a wealth of knowledge though. Cause you can, you can go watch all these uh, presentations that have been given at these conferences all over the country. And um, Gabe, Gabe Brown's probably my favorite. I'd love to go see his operation sometime. Um, but he's kind of one that really kickstarted things. And I've emailed a little bit with him the, over the years with some questions and stuff. And um, yeah, so yeah. that I don't have any specific though that I can remember. I don't, I don't read too many books. I wish I okay. read more. <laughs> no, it's always good. I just, I always like asking people in case they have a, an influencer or something they've just recently run across to um, 
to, to point out there. So, but yeah, appreciate it. Yep. You, when we first started talking, you mentioned when you came back to the operation, you kind of had to bring something and you brought sheep back into the operation when you came. Yeah. What do you see going forward here now? Um, you know, now that, that you've kind of matured into your, your farm ranch and, and what do you see as the next growth? Um, is it a different business? Is it expansion within the operation? What does that look like? I think it's just expansion within the operation mainly. Um, just building the cow herd, building the sheep herd, and just improving improving our genetics. I think that's the thing I, I liked most about the sheep right away is I was at scale enough to where I could easily uh, keep replacements and and uh, really feel like I was improving my flock. And there's so many things on the sheep side of things to select for versus cattle. I mean, anywhere from wool quality to parasite resistance to prolificacy to uh, seasonality of when they breed and mothering ability i just the list goes on and on and there's lots of things with cattle too but i just i like the amount of the control i had over it to to improve myself and improve the flock and what and the overall profitability of it so it happens a little faster too you know you can see your your selections really really fast with sheep Uh, what about uh, this is maybe a little bit wonky of a question but if you're making selections and you're kind of into the grazing what about like herding ability or uh foraging characteristics uh anything like that that you've noticed in your operation on your sheep flock um not really i mean if they're like put them out on whatever i put them out on if they're as long as they're in good condition they breed well and yeah and raise lambs i guess that's good enough for me otherwise yeah. i haven't paid too much attention to that but probably more so fleshing ability and and, and lower yeah. uh, intake maintenance requirements just, and things like that just condition because you'll yep. You'll find out real quick with sheep. I mean, it's um, come lambing time, she's either going to be in good condition, she's going to have plenty of milk, or she's going to have sizable lambs. But it's rarely all three. <laughs> you know, you might see a you that man, she's in poor condition, but she's yeah. milking good, yeah. nice, good sized lambs, and then sometimes big lambs. You is just fat and hardly any milk. So yeah, true, that's true. that's a tough thing I've seen, and I I think that probably has something to do with genetics as well there. That is, you know, that's a great point. That is so much more variable than in cows. Yeah. yeah. Why yeah. is that? And that's, uh, that's why I've, I've struggled with moving to, uh, pasture lambing or range lambing, if you will, just because you can't be out there to get everything worked and tagged and in a reasonable manner. So yeah. your, your record keeping just goes by the wayside then. You know, so and that's that's kind of what happens to the sheep industry out west. They're mostly, not mostly, but a lot of them, range lamb, and so in the fall, they bring everything off the mountains or wherever, and and they pick out the nicest looking ewe lambs. Well, most of the time, those are going to be singles. Yeah. So then that, you know, so and why are they singles? It's because is it because the ewe had single, or because she had twins and abandoned one, or couldn't raise a second one? So you just don't know. And so when you I think a lot of the sheep coming out west or coming from out west, there's a lot of variability there, and they just don't have the prolificacy out there, probably because of that. I would say. Yeah, well, I think it's um, good if uh, for folks that you know want to move their calving season back to into with nature and go to May and still want a winter project and don't like ice fishing. You know, like lambing is a good thing to do in the winter. <laughs> yeah, you don't yep. need the labor, you know, in the in the spring as much, and so you know you don't really need to like save your labor and use it up then. 
But mm-hmm. if you spend, if you're doing a good job today, like a, just an okay job, everything's getting fed, getting checked on once a day, you know, bare minimum, baseline, okay job. You could spend mm-hmm. an extra four hours a day with your cow herd and raise your, you know, live cap percentage 2%. Mm. Yep. Right? You could raise your lamb drop by 30%, 40% with an extra four hours a day. Right? Exactly. Just like just working and working and working and jugging and saving orphans and that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it is a lot more rewarding. You're, yeah, like you said, your time invested is is well worth it. Um, yeah. And that's where. So in the in the short term, I I don't like lambing in January through March time frame. Just yeah, it's colder. You know, yeah. you got to feed them more, and um, but it's a it's not a busy time of year. I have the facilities. That's not the problem. Um, and yeah, you can just manage things better. And as far as record keeping and improving your flock you know who has twins who has triplets who has singles how's their mothering ability all that stuff so as opposed to uh last year i i fall lambed successfully for the first time Mm. out on out on cover crops and looking back it wasn't as bad as i probably made it out to be at the time but you'd go out there and there's just lambs everywhere (laughs) (laughs) and most of them are all paired up at all all of a sudden now there's just one out there by itself or maybe there's a dead one way off somewhere and that just bothers you because it's like not not that the the dead lamb so much but just why you know what happened did did she leave it did you know you just yeah so that that bothered me enough to where this year i was like okay i'm gonna lamb them in the yard and then they go back out on pasture after that and uh so that way i'm you know not using a lot of uh, feed resources or anything like that and just a little bit of time to feed them before they lamb and and then lamb them out and out to go. So one last sheep question. Are you doing anything to flush the ewes on in on your summer grazing? Anything different other than just you know, normal rotation to try and increase lamb drop? No, the first first couple of years I did uh drain them. I made some feed bunks out of uh guardrails and go out there and I don't know if I gave them a pound of corn a day probably. Since then I just I figured what's the use? I, I had them on cover crops anyway, which is plenty, plenty nutritious at that time of year. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and going forward with the genetic selection process, well, let's, let's find the ewes that are going to have twins without flushing, you know, mm-hmm. let's, let's take out that input and, and see where, where we end up, you know? So okay. that's kind of what I've been doing mm-hmm. now last couple of years. Anyway, we've been, when we land in the spring, it's usually kind of late, you know, late March, early April, mid April. So like every other year, we've got a 50-acre piece right behind the place where the sheep usually are. It's, uh, you know, it's either in some kind of a cover crop or it's in corn. It goes to silage and then rye. And mm-hmm. so we'll have rye that we plant after corn silage. And there will be much to it, right? It'll be rye like it looks like in the fall, a couple of inches high, no big deal. You'd think there's nothing to it. And the sheep will go out there and just absolutely grub it to the ground. Right? It doesn't hurt yeah. for the next year, but they'll just enjoy the heck out of it. And yep. this is the second the second cycle of that or third cycle of it, maybe I can't remember, but when that happens, our lamb drop is through the roof. It's really? like up a hundred percent. We yeah. had more quads this last year than we've ever had ever, you know, in, in 15 years of doing it, just quads, everywhere, triplets. These are out of wool, like white face wool use. They're not mm-hmm. Western type use. They're not, you know, kind of geared towards that. So yeah. anyway, well, I think we're going to try and find a way to, you know, continue with that. And it's, it's worked way better than any, any time we've ever tried to grain them. Yeah. 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 And then just the, the hassle going out there every day. And, oh yeah. And feed, 
that too. And, you know, yeah. um, this is the first year I've had them, uh, solely on soybean stubble. And, mm. uh, that's, I, I've, I knew everybody's done it and I had never tried it. And, and yeah, they, they definitely, they're happy out there. They will, so. they will graze soybean stubble much better than a cow. Yeah, because they're right next it. to a field of corn yeah. stalks, but they don't spend much time in the stocks. So. I've got mine on the exact same scenario right now. Yeah, they'll yeah. pick at soybeans. They they prefer them over the corn stalks. Yep, yep. And when you and when you start combining soybeans at you know thirteen percent, well, you know, just give it a few days and they'll be nine. So you're right. Yeah, you shatter. Plenty and... ahead or lost. So well, at least the sheep can pick some of that up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yep. <Yeah. clears throat> Yeah. <laughs> awesome. No, no. no, this has been fun. Uh, yeah, I, I love the diversity of your operation and, and like your eagerness to just dive in. Like, I mean, I think yeah. that's a, a very cool story and appreciate you taking the time to tell us and yeah. share with well, lots of people. So. That's the challenging part is especially now in the last few years, we've seen a lot of stuff come out. Well, like the, the 60 inch corn deal that people are doing, that's that among a million other things is you, you want to try it all in one year, right? You know, yeah. especially in the winter time, you're sitting there and you're watching videos or reading magazines, man, I want to try it next year. And then springtime rolls around and it's just gone in the blink of an eye and you're going hard to get everything in and, huh? Yeah. We'll try it next year. Can't try it all at once, but can't yeah, try it all at once. Really, That's right. I'm sure, really I'm sure your things. grandpa tries to help pace you a little bit too. There oh yeah, well, he's go. he's all go. We're not gonna yep. we're not gonna slow down to mess around with nothing. So <laughs> yeah, perfect. Yep. Cameron, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. You bet. I appreciate it as well. I had a good Alrighty. time. So. Yep. Thank you. We'll catch you later. later. Well, we hope you enjoyed another episode of the Roots and Ruminants podcast. Uh, let us know what you thought of it. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, uh, all those social media things. And, uh, you know, if you ever have any questions, just give us a call. Um, we've got a toll-free number here at 888-498-7333. Be glad to hear from you. Thank you.